Well, it's good to be back here uh, bringing message to you this morning. It's been a long time since I preached here. So I was on, it wasn't because I don't love you. It was, I was on sabbatical the, most of the summer. And so I just want to thank you, particularly the North Andover campus, uh, for, uh, well, just in general, for the, the blessing of it is to be able to take a break and to refresh but also for sharing Pastor Brian with the rest of the church. He was preaching more in Andover than, uh, than normal. And uh, so back to rhythm, he'll be here most weeks. And, uh, but that is, so for me to be able to go away, he did that and it, it, it impacts everybody. So I wanna especially thank North Andover Campus uh, for that, and it's just really good to be back. I was scheduled to preach here a couple weeks ago, but we had uh, explosions. The, the, there was a fire, and um, I, I'm still, as, as some of you are, I'm still without heat or hot water and, and, uh, at the parsonage, and uh, it makes it hard to shower and uh, you know do cooking and, and just kind of normal everyday things. But but we're alive and we're safe and we're grateful. But a little bit. It's getting a little annoying, and uh, so, but uh, and there's no heat or hot water at the Andover campus site, so we've had trouble. We had to cancel some events and some cooking, and um, anyway, so we had Alpha catered. It was lovely on Tuesday. First week of Alpha this week, actually, too. If you are interested, it that does start. We did a kickoff thing last week, but the first week one of the course is on Tuesday night. So, uh, catered food is kind of nice. Um, but, so I, we were really surprised by this. And if you know me at all, you know I really don't like surprises. Surprises are bad. Um, if you love me, you would never throw me a surprise party. That would be a great way to hurt my feelings. Um, and yeah, surprises are when things, you know, catch on fire and, and blow up, and that's not good. Um, however, one instance where I do like a good surprise is in a good book or a movie. And when there's a little plot twist or a little surprise thing that you weren't expecting comes up, that's a good kind of surprise. And actually, in this text that was just read for us, uh, in, in Romans chapter 12, we have a little bit of an unexpected thing that happens, a little bit of a surprise for us. And I want to I wanna show you that, what happens. And we have not been studying the book of Romans, so uh, if you're not familiar with it, the first 11 chapters of this of this uh, letter that Paul is writing to the church in Rome. He's explaining what God has done to rescue a world that is lost and dead in sin and what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. So he is uh, describing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that we are saved and rescued uh, by this good news, what Christ accomplished on the cross. And when you embrace that good news by faith, you want to worship. You want to praise the God who's done that for you. No surprises there. But remember, this is being written to people who, who were pretty sure they knew what worship was. Uh, there was Jewish Christians in this church, and the Jewish believers understood uh, worship. You know, God's presence was known in the, uh, the temple, and there was uh, sets of rituals and routines and offerings and sacrifices and festivals and ways of worshiping that were prescribed in Scripture. And so you go and you do those things and that they had a good understanding of where and how to do that. You also had in the same church, you had uh, non-Jewish, you had Gentile believers. They also would have had a background of worship. They had their own deities and their own temples and their own a way of offering sacrifices and offerings. So no surprise 
for them either. But here's, here's what will be shocking. When the Apostle Paul writes about worship, he says that worship is much more than any of those things. The temples, the offerings, the sacrifices. He says that worship involves our living body. And that's the part that would be a little bit surprising to the readers of this letter. In many of them, the worldview of the day was that the body, the living body, really wasn't that important. You know, the body is, is deficient. You know, that they had a, a sort of a dualistic view that the spiritual things are important, but the physical thing, including the physical body, not so important. And for us, too, I think, you think about the, our bodies get achy and they break down and they get, you know, doughy and it just, it's a body, how can this honor, you know, worship is about my spirit. It's about this thing out there that's invisible. It's not as concrete as my body and my everyday life. But here, Paul says that it's a living body. True and proper worship is a living body offered as a living sacrifice. So it, this is a tough concept for the original readers. It could be a tough concept for us too. This very broad and big definition of worship. So I want to just focus in this morning. What is worship? What is this broad definition of worship? What can we understand about worship as we uh, consider, uh, consider this definition, this broader definition? And then think a little bit, okay, well then what does that look like as we worship together? and as we seek to live lives of worship. So that's what I want to do this morning. Uh, let's pray as we, as we begin this. So Father, as I have said and as we believe, you deserve this. You are worthy of us getting together and coming to this place and giving you praise. And we, we do it because you are, you are love and you love us and you have given everything we need. And I pray that we would respond well to that, that you would continue to teach us and form us and shape us as we consider your word this morning. So this time is yours. It's always been yours, uh, but we just acknowledge that and we pray your blessing over this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is worship? So I want to start, I want to notice three things from this passage that paint this broad picture, this broad definition of whole life worship. The uh, first thing is this, is that worship is a response to God's mercy. We see this in verse 1. In view of God's mercy, we offer our bodies, offer our bodies as living sacrifice. Um, again, those first, the first part of this letter has all been about what God has done for the world. And now the response to that is to give thanks. Once you understand what God's done, you realize that you want to worship. Therefore... Worship is not primarily something that I do. It's not, worship is not about me reaching out to God to try to accomplish something or get something from God. Worship is about him reaching out to me and he giving me something and I respond to what he's done. You see, he initiates and I respond. Worship is not what we initiate and then he responds to our worship. Do you see the difference? So worship is a response to God, and, and therefore, not everybody worships. And, and the Apostle Paul, earlier in this letter, he wrote this. He was, he was writing about those who did not respond in faith to what God had done. Uh, uh, verse, Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23 says, Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. His point is this. God made, him, made his presence known to the world through creation, but not everybody worships. Not everybody responds to what God has done. They substitute it for other things and other false forms of worship. And I, I know I've heard it said, and perhaps I've even said, everybody worships something, which is sort of true, that everybody has something in their life that has the most value or the most importance in their life. But worship with this broad definition, not everybody worships. That some people do not respond to what God has done uh, in giving him thanks and praise, and they do their own thing. So not everybody worships in this sense. Because worship is a response to God's mercy. That's the first thing. Second thing we notice here is that worship involves our living body. Again, still in verse 1 here. Uh, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Therefore, worship's not some abstracted experience. It's not... um, it's not just a spiritual experience. It's, it, it's not just a personal and inward thing. It's a whole life, a living body thing. So certainly, that means that worship is much more than an hour on Sunday. And we call this worship, and it is. We gather for a worship service. That's one hour on Sunday, if I finish on time. Uh, if, and sometimes we refer just to a part of that one hour as worship, the time when we're singing. So if somebody says, how was the worship today? They might be saying, what was the music? They may not even consider the rest of what we're doing as worship. So we, have a, we can have a very narrow definition sometimes. But we need to understand if, if, if worship is, and that is worship, by the way. So it's absolutely right to call. When we, when we stand and sing, that's worship. When we gather, this is worship. But if worship is my living body, then there's no sort of sacred time and secular time. we got to erase that divide between the sacred and the secular and understand that we are called to worship in, the, in, the, in our streets and in our homes and our workplaces. Which is very different than how the readers of this letter would have understood worship, but also very much the same. If, if, if a Jewish Christian said, yes, worship is at the temple because, or it's best at the temple because God's presence is experienced at the temple. That's where his glory resides. But since Christ, we now, by his spirit, his, his temple is everywhere. His presence is with each of us. And 1 first, first Corinthians 6 says, your body is a temple of God's spirit. So God's presence isn't just in a building, it's, it's in us. Uh, worship was always in God's way. It was always sort of in the order, and, and here's the rules and the rituals and the sacrifices. Jesus came to fulfill all the rules, all the law. He was the ultimate sacrifice. And so he's, he's done all the ceremonial stuff that needed to be done. So what's left? The only law left is the law of love. Romans 13, 8, later in the same letter, that uh, Paul teaches, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. There's this aspect of all this ceremony and ritual that Jesus fulfilled, but the only thing left is that we go and we love. And that's something that we do not just at certain festivals or certain days, we can do all the time. Uh, Worship was always for God's glory. 
What glorified God? What pleases God? Jesus said on John 17, I have brought you glory. This is Jesus, God the Son, praying to God the Father. He says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. So what is going to bring glory to God is completing a mission. The mission was to, to love him and to love people and to make disciples as we go about our lives. That's the mission. So God is glorified as we complete the mission. That's, and again, that's not something that can reside in one place or one hour. Uh, and we've got a few weeks to unpack these notions. This is sort of the, I want to set the framework for this new sermon series of whole life worship and the, in keeping this bigger and broader definition right at the forefront. So first of all, response to God's mercy, it involves my living body. And then thirdly, worship is a transformational force as we understand this broader definition. Look at verse two. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If we look at verse 1 and verse 2, we see there is a connection between worship and a life of worship and being changed and the things that I, my actions and my thoughts and my understanding of God's will, these things are connected. They are related. And Brian talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were, the, when everybody was here right after the explosions and everything. He was talking about how when we are in Christ, we are a new thing. We're a new creation. So we have new priorities and new values and we, a new thing is, is, is being done. It's, it, it changes our perspective. And then we see the world differently and when we see the world differently, we discover, that we, we discover what God is doing in the world and in our lives. That's God's will. But a lot of times, and certainly you know, people who aren't necessarily Christians or people of faith, but sometimes Christians too, we want spiritual guidance and we want God's guidance, but we approach it really in the wrong way. We're prone, almost a, there's almost this magical view that God is going to give me signs and I just need to tap into these signs that God is giving me or God's going to just give me, um, oh, it, it, God's going to, you know, just give me these, an urge or, or some kind of message and and God can do that, certainly give you signs and, and, and prompt you. But really, if we, if we think of all of life as worship and we're constantly on the lookout for what God is doing and giving him praise for it, we are um, understanding that God is guiding us. We are understanding his will as we worship. So let me say it this way. It's not so much about how God guides us, but who is it that God guides? Proverbs 11.3 says, the integrity of the upright guides them. It's that as we act in faith and as we walk in righteousness, God is guiding us through that. It's not just about us finding some mystical thing out there. So the more that I live an obedient life, the more I live a righteous life, the more it glorifies God and the more God guides me. Not because I'm so good, not because I've now earned more guidance from God, but because I'm seeing everything through a new lens of, of worship and experiencing God, that I'm seeing God everywhere and I'm understanding his heart and his will more and more every day. If I see worship 
as uh, something I do for one hour on Sunday, then I only have that little sliver of a picture into what God is doing. But if I look at every moment of the day through that same lens, now I've got a whole uh, spectrum of God's guidance because I'm seeking it in all those places. So if we compartmentalize our faith, we, we, we miss out on those places that get compartmentalized. But if we enter whole life worship, we are more aware of God's presence because worship is a transformational thing and it's transforming us and we're understanding God's will. So here's what we want to do. And this is why we're, we're teaching this sermon series. I want to move from the obvious part of our worship. We gather on Sunday, that's worship, that's obvious. And I want to use that, our understanding of that, to push us and propel us into our less obvious part of our worship, which I'll call our Monday worship. So, but then I was thinking, does what we do on Sunday make sense? Do we really understand what our Sunday worship is, that all that we do is worship? Because if we don't have that part of it down, then how is it going to propel us forward? So I want to just take a look at a normal Sunday and just kind of talk through how these things are worship. So do we have, okay, we have a slide. Okay, we have a call to worship. Well, that makes sense. And this is, has uh, the equivalent in the Old Testament. Maybe somebody would sound a horn or ring a bell or somebody will stand and say, hey, it is time has come for worship. We're going to stand together. We're going to gather together. We may speak God's word, a word of scripture. We, may, uh, we did a responsive reading today. We are speaking out loud the fact that we are here to worship and, and speaking of who God is. And that, is, that begins our worship. And then we have these songs. We have a gathering song where right away we are lifting our voices. We're praising God for who he is and who we are in light of what he's done. Again, this is, I feel that's sort of an obvious expression of worship that makes sense to most people. And then we have announcements. Now, come on, now, are announcements worship? I think they can be. And I think they should be. And actually, we make announcements in our worship because we are a community. That we are not just called to worship individually, but we're called to be together. And when we're all together, we talk about the life of the community. This is what God is doing. This is what we are doing together to gather, to grow, to grow as disciples, to, to know what God has done for us in deeper and more meaningful ways. So even our announcements are part of our worship because it reminds us that we are uh, not just individuals and that that. We are pursuing God together in all these different ways. That's why we let you know about upcoming stuff. They, it may not always feel that way, but consider that. Uh, then we, we pray. We, we will use a prayer or a creed. Most oftenly, we'll pray the Lord's Prayer, or we will say together the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, because that's going to take some more explaining. Uh, then we sing, again, songs of praise, more just, and often our... Our songs are just the words of scripture that speaking of God's character and his heart and his goodness and returning him praise for that. And then we pray. And again, a prayer is very much like a song. When, when we get up and pray, we're, we, we're thanking God, we're praising him, but we're also lifting our needs to him. When you pray for something that you need, the need of our community, the needs of our world, our individual needs, it's acknowledging who God is. It's acknowledging that he is sovereign. The only reason we pray is because we believe he can actually do something. 
We actually believe that God is in control of all things and uh, over all authority and rulers. So we pray. And then we read scripture and we, there's a, a sermon that is spoken that expounds and explains scripture and, and helps us to drive that truth of scripture home to our lives. And God's word, this is part of the worship too. It's not that we stop worship to hear the guy talk. It's part of our worship because we're reminded of who God is, what he's, again, point number one, our worship is a response to God's mercy. And as, we, as scripture reveals God's mercy, it's part of our worship too. So we have a scripture reading and a sermon, and then we have an offering. We continue our worship as we give of ourselves, as we realize that worship is a whole life thing. It includes me, it includes my possessions, and that's part of worship. This summer, I had the joy of visiting other churches. I never get to do that. And I love doing it. I, I tend to be a little critical when I go visit churches. Going, hmm, why are they doing that? How are they doing that? I'm really kind of analyzing everything. And uh, it's kind of a defect. But I also am able to just sort of be present and enjoy that. So I was at this one church. I won't say where. But uh, they came to the point in their service where there was going to be an offering. And the person leading said, at this time, we're going to stop and take this morning's offering. And I about jumped out of my seat. I said, did he really just say they're going to stop and they're going to take? I would say, right now, we're going to continue our worship in the giving of our offerings. There's a big difference between stopping and taking and continuing and giving. Because as just the same as we sing with our voices and we lift our hearts, we also give freely of what we have, and that is a continuation of our worship, and it's a giving, not, a, not about taking. So that is part of our worship. <clears throat> and then uh, we have uh, more singing and then a word of benediction. Benediction is a word of blessing, and my hope is that as words of blessing and words of sending are spoken over you, over this group of people, that in some way it would propel us to continue a life of worship as we walk through the doors. So that's what we do, and it's all for God's glory. It's all worship. Now, let's go back to this, um, the creed, the creeds. Um, why do we use creeds in worship? Real quick, um, creeds unite us to Christians in time and place. So all around the world, especially the Apostles' Creed, uh, believers are speaking these words. When I was in China last year, they, I went to the worship. I didn't understand anything they said, but I knew that they were saying the Apostles' Creed because I understood the cadence of how they were speaking. And I, it, was, it was such a beautiful that we speak the same creed that has been spoken. And that particular creed is uh, one of the most ancient in the history of the church back to the second century. So the middle of the second century, these uh, similar words. I went to, this past summer, I'm part of my sabbatical, I was in London. We went to St. Paul's Cathedral. I don't know if anybody's been to St. Paul's in London. Beautiful cathedral. And we went to the evening prayer, and they handed a, they had a little bulletin that they gave all the worshipers going in. And it says this, it said this on the cover of the bulletin. It said, Christian worship has been offered to God on this site for over 1,400 years. By worshiping with us today, you become part of a living tradition of prayer and thanksgiving. And I really felt that. I thought, wow, 
stepping into this place, there's been 1,400 years of prayer, and I'm part of that now. And when we say an ancient creed of the church, a statement of faith, that we are continuing a tradition of proclaiming our faith in Jesus Christ. So it unites us to people everywhere, and it unites us to each other. We are here in this place because we believe something. We believe God did something on earth that he accomplished something, and we praise him for it, and we state that Jesus Christ was crucified dead and was buried, that he rose again. You know, that we, we, our, our faith is very historical, and we're stating the truth of our faith, and we share that. It unites us. And it reminds us, if our faith is historical, it's not just a path. It's not just uh, an idea. It's not a philosophy. It's, it's about good news. It's about what he's accomplished. And that prepares us to worship because worship is a response to God's mercy and what God has done. Uh, but what we've recently come to realize is we need to um, make some changes to the creed. And I say that changes. We're not changing the Apostles' Creed. It, it was not written in English. So there's some translation issues um, and this particular creed that we call the Apostles' Creed evolved quite a bit over about a 500-year period. So from the middle of the 2nd century to the middle of the 7th century, to about the words that we say today, uh, it's, it kind of grew and changed. And it was the Apostles' Creed specifically was a tool of the church to teach people the faith. It wasn't... Some of the other creeds of the church, and not to get too church history geeky on you, but other creeds of the church, for example, the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed, they were written at a specific date, at a specific time, and specific words, and it was signed off on by councils of church leaders. And they were responding to particular false teaching or heresy. The Apostles' Creed wasn't in response to any particular heresy. It was just a beginner creed. It was a way to speak the Christian faith in very simple language. So it's a teaching tool. And we want to use it as a teaching tool. But if we're going to use it in that same tradition, it needs to be clear. And we have been using in the past kind of a, an ancient version of this creed. So we needed to um, update that. And nothing that we're recommending here, or nothing that we're going to be using, is unique. We didn't, we're not doing this to be uh, innovative and cute. We, we did this. Uh, other churches are using these same phrases, uh, the same words. So it's the same creed. But I want to show you this, because next time we say this creed together, we're going to use the new words. So we're going to say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, instead of maker. Creation is a much stronger, better word. Actually, most traditions use this word, creator, uh, instead of the word maker, about the work of God the Father. Then we talk about the uh, Jesus who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not the Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, it's the same thing. But I never use the word Holy Ghost. It's, it's not how we talk. When we talk about God the Spirit, the third person of the, the Trinity... We say Holy Spirit all the time. So when we say the creed, it only makes sense to use that same language. It makes more sense to people. And listen, if you prefer Holy Ghost, because that's how you learned these words and it's meaningful to you, say Holy Ghost. It's okay. It's the same thing. So uh, born of the lowercase v, Virgin Mary. Her name wasn't Virgin Mary. Her name was Mary. She was a virgin. It's more descriptive than a name. Um, 
So even she might appreciate that. Uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, descended to the dead. Now that's the most controversial of the phrases of the creed. Um, instead of descended to hell. Actually, dead is a better translation of the word uh, dead, realm of the dead, Hades. And it was a later addition to the creed. I don't have time to explain this whole, this whole one to you, but I have actually preached a sermon on this, which I'd be happy to share with you back in 2016. But this is going to be clearer and less controversial than uh, the other way of, of saying that. Uh, sits at the right hand of God instead of sitteth. I never use the word sitteth. You all, you're all sitting here right now peacefully. But I don't even really know how to use the word correctly. So we're going to say sits uh, from there instead of thence to judge the living and the dead instead of the quick and the dead. Again, this is just a matter of translation and nothing innovative. Next slide. Uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit again, instead of ghost. The Holy Christian Church. This one, so we would say Holy Catholic Church with a small c. Small c Catholic means universal. The, the holy universal church, that there is one church. All the believers, all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, all the Christians, there is one body, one church. So, but whenever we say Holy Catholic Church, somebody comes up to me and says, are we a Catholic church? Because I didn't think we were a Catholic church. I said, oh no, we're a Catholic church, small c. We're not the Roman Catholic church, the big c and the Pope and the bishops and that whole thing. Um, but, you know, but as they put their faith in Christ, we're all part of the small c Catholic. This is what we mean, and it's going to be a lot easier. And then every week when we do it, I don't have to explain it again. Um, which I'm happy to do, of course. But why intentionally have something that's going to trip people up? Okay. Uh, the fellowship of all the saints instead of the communion of saints. That, again, that translation of, that, of the phrase better exhibits what we mean by that. That there is a, a fellowship of all of the saints, meaning God's people. Again, lowercase s, saints. Um, not just those who have been named saints by churches or bodies of leader, church leaders. Saints, all God's people. Past and present, those who have gone before and all who are alive today. So, and the rest of it's the same. So we hope that this is clear. I want to thank, there was a team of people who worked really hard on wrestling with some of these phrases and words and did a lot of research. Mac McSweeney, Dan Murphy, Tim Pierce, Eric Runge, Pastor Brian, and David Dearest all worked very hard. And then the Board of Elders worked very hard on it. And then we got to where we are. <sighs> That's a long tangent. That's one of the longest um, tangents I've ever given you. Let me pull this all together. We want our worship that we understand, including when we say a creed together, all that we do to make sense to us, to help us to worship God, so that as we leave this place, we see those same things in our lives. So if prayer is part of our Sunday worship, prayer can be part of your Monday worship. Where does prayer happen in your day? How, do you, how can you foster a life of prayer? Scripture on Sunday. Where is Scripture part of your Monday worship? It might be obvious. You might sit and read the Bible, but maybe there's something that happens in your day that reminds you of God's Word, something that you saw or experienced that, that displays the truth of God's Word that brings it alive to you. Again, singing on Sunday, I get that. But what does singing look like on Monday? Maybe you just sing in your car, you sing in the shower. But what sings as you work? Are there, are there ways that you can go about your day that is, has harmony and uh, is an act of praise to God? You know, did worship actually happen? How do I know? And we've got this whole series to flesh this out together.
May you see it. May you experience worship. God is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of all of our sacrifice and our life. May it be for his glory and praise God. Let's pray. Father, I, help, I pray that when we, as we explore this together over these next weeks, even today, Lord, whatever you're stirring in us and showing us, that it would propel us to live lives that seek to give you glory in all things, Lord. That it, would, that it would change us as we worship. That we would know your will in deeper ways as we worship. As, as you transform us. As our minds are renewed and made more and more like your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, it, uh, so we give ourselves to you, Lord. Be glorified. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.